This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. In the studio with me today for an episode all things crime and gangland, we have Nicola Talent, who is the investigations editor at the Sunday World and host of the Crime World podcast. Welcome to the studio. Thanks, Stephanie. So, I mean, lots to talk about. I have a particular obsession with crime, true crime at the moment, um, in a way that I'm not sure is hel- like, I think it makes me forget that this is real, you know? Yeah. It's true crime, but I'm like, oh, yes, another true crime podcast for me to wa- listen to on my walk. Relax. Yeah, which says a lot about my trauma response, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love listening to your podcast, and I think Irish crime. So there's. Different types of podcasts, right? We go into like historical cases Mm. of like generally women who have been murdered. And I like listening to those kind of as a story and see how it all played out. But then there's like things that are happening today on our streets, in our lives with gangland, but then also kind of like just smaller one-off incidents. And they're a little bit more scary Mm. because because they're not in the past. Um, How does your work in the Sunday world... Like, how do you do your job? Like, how do you find out this information on the gangs? Are you just reporting things that happen? Do you have inside scoops? Just talk to us about... A bit of everything, really. And on the Crime World podcast, which is just what you've described, it's kind of reacting a lot to what's happening around mm-hmm. us. Um, and I do other podcasts, which are those longer stories that you describe, which are a totally different animal to make. And... Um, to tell different stories like you have to really delve I mean they're like writing a book to be honest yeah because they're sure them in, a, in an almost an episode by episode way and they can take six months eight months to create you know um, and I think also you need some intimacy for them to be interesting enough you need something um, I personally don't like the ones where people are just retelling stories from old from a, archives yes. or whatever mm-hmm. Um I like when I'm hearing a voice I've never heard before, um, like we did with The Witness with Joey O'Callaghan oh, having amazing. his voice tell the story. And I think um, you get an intimacy with that person through that. But kind of on the general day-to-day beat, um, look, I speak to a lot of my own colleagues who are experts in certain areas of crime. So they will have an inside story or an, ins- an insight into what's happened. Um, I'd have a good bit of information myself and kind of contacts myself we always will react to certain things. But at the same time, you're following a beat like recently there was the Regency trial. So mm-hmm. I kind of went to that and um, irreverently maybe almost reported on it every day after it, what had happened, what it was like sitting in the courtroom. It's quite nice doing the podcast because you don't have to put your head down into in a courtroom into a notebook. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You can take a couple of little notes, but you're actually being more descriptive and you can paraphrase. So you don't need exact quotes. It's and not court notes, especially yeah. Especially with the Special Criminal Court because we've only got judges there. That's why we can do it at that. Obviously, if there was a trial, you wouldn't be able to be as irreverent or commentary, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm just trying to think even this week, we've done a lot of stuff around the whole hysteria around crime in Dublin city centre. Do you think it is hysteria? I don't think much has changed, to be honest with you. I okay. think there has been a political focus on it, which is usually the reason everybody else sort of sits up and goes, oh my God, this is out of control. Although it seems that the Fine Gael Minister for Justice... Um, Helen McEntee isn't actually that concerned about it. Like she says, I feel safe in Dublin. I go out with my friends. Well, she went out on Talbot Street, which is where I work, surrounded by, I think, five or six police officers. I'd feel pretty safe in that circumstance yeah. myself. Um, but do you, you think know, it's just like there's been a few high profile, like we, like it. if the Cade Mila Falcha is at mm. stake, we take things very seriously. And so when the, when tourists are being attacked and, you know, the American embassy is releasing statements to American people, then we kind of take it seriously. But that's always the way with crime, though, to be honest with you. It's always there beating away in the background and then something happens. And, you know, in a crass way, some victims have an X factor. Okay, And something will happen and all of a sudden people will sit up and start taking notice of the fact that young kids are being groomed into gangs and, you know, or there's people out there with guns and they're shooting at each other in in communities. And some things just seem to cross the line or capture 
the imagination or the the, the nation's fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in particular with crime, what we see is sometimes there'll be a murder of a female and it could be a random murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to go into any specific cases because there's plenty of stuff before the courts and that. But we sort of, you know, it might be something that feels like it could happen to us. Okay. And I think then we sort of start getting a little bit overreactive about it. I mean, the fact of the matter is the large proportion of people murdered are either that happens in a domestic situation by somebody they know or there's a lot of gun crime around drug dealing and that. Um, The chances of you kind of walking down the street, walking your dog in the evening and being hopped upon by some random stranger who would, you know, drag you into bush, kill you and disappear off. uh, That's really, really rare. And I think it's because it's rare but when it happens, it has so many human interest components and it hooks onto so many fears in our brain that mm-hmm. it becomes a big story. But we're more empathetic, I think, to things that could happen to us or could potentially affect our world. Sure, because if you know that like someone's been killed in gangland crime, you're like, well, they were a drug dealer mm-hmm. and they had a gun, so they got shot. That's never going to be me. Let them kill each other. Yeah. Which I do think people have that kind of motto. They do, but I see it as... I think we should kind of really engage with that a little bit more because it's not just, they're not just the reasons that happens. Of course, there are people in middle class society who are funding that whole industry, who, mm-hmm. are, who are going out at the weekends and buying cocaine, you know, because they they're having a good time. They cannot see the connection though, they can they? They cannot see the connection and none of us can. And also really, when we look at things like that happening in kind of underprivileged communities, um, it's easy to just look on. And, mm-hmm. and go, well, I don't live there. My kids don't have to grow up there. So I'm OK, Jack. Whereas I really think that we should be kind of thinking more about it as a social problem that we're all to blame for. Do you think that decriminalising drugs or regulating them somehow would help that? I or don't think it it appears to do so in uh, other know, jurisdictions, in other societies like. You so know, how do you tackle it? Like, Well, the laws around it and, and policing it and all the rest of it are one element But really, it is a public health problem, a lot of it. So why are these people doing it in the first place? And also, you know, trying to steer kids through a certain period in their lives to try and get them out the other end, you know. Having not been groomed and put into this. Exactly. Okay. Um, So recently we saw a documentary um, uh, about John Gilligan on Virgin Media, which isn't actually all released yet, but it has started to be released as we record this. Um, And there's a couple of things that I want to talk about there. One is John Gilligan being most famous for his association with Veronica Guerin's death. And Veronica Guerin basically was doing what you do. Mm -hmm. How does, like, does her death and what happened to her, does that play on your mind? Do you feel unsafe in what you do? Does it... Do you ever get threatened or have things changed so much? Or was she more poking the bear in a way that you don't do anymore? I think probably, unfortunately for Veronica, you know, she taught us all lessons in what not to do in a way. You okay. know, in the After her murder, I think the realisation of what we were dealing with as journalists was very clear. Um, I think... You know, journalists still get murdered in places. It's it's again a lot of it can be just somebody psychotic can take a personal vendetta, vendetta yeah. and and that's the way it happened recently in the Netherlands. Um, it weighs on me because people always ask me about it, yes, but okay. I don't sort of go around all day thinking, "Oh my God, um, I'm doing the job Veronica Guerin does." Uh, I think it's probably because I'm a female in the industry, um, and there are other females actually quite a few working as crime journalists, but um, it certainly seems to be a question that people immediately move to Mm -hmm. um, if they're talking about it. Um, Threats are there. Um, They can be. I mean, thank God and touch wood, I haven't had much trouble of late. But I sort of feel like nowadays, they kind of like when you write about them. Like being on the cover of the Sunday World is almost... A, a, a badge. They always did. I mean, there okay. are certain. You see, so they, I suppose, as we call them, are all different individuals as yes, well. Okay, you yeah. know what I mean? I mean, you can. They're pretty much similar to all of us. They have different personalities. Criminals have different kind of reasons to be. 
some of them like publicity, some of them like John Gilligan, for example, loves being the centre of attention and he loves the idea of having a forum that he can navigate. So why did he not want Veronica reporting on him? Well, at that time, um, she was she had been attacked famously down at his property and there was a court case pending for him. She was making a complaint okay. and made a statement and he felt it was putting a lot of heat on him. Um, and now he has denied all this, of course, okay. in his interview and has over the years denied it. He was acquitted of her murder and convicted of drug offences. Um, so has anyone been charged for her murder? Yes, they've been his members of his gang were convicted okay. and have been identified as being the hitmen. Um, he would be identified by and large as the guy who ordered it. He says he didn't. And he has continued with that narrative throughout and including in this latest documentary. But he's a guy who likes to have it his way. He's very smart ass. He's very sneering. Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks he is more intelligent than everybody around him and the system. And he likes to feel he's constantly beating the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, look, I've watched some of the documentary. I wasn't glued to it, which is kind of, I think, really says Telling, it all because yeah. I should have been. Um, I kept fast forwarding bits of it. Uh, I find him quite boring. I totally dislike him. I, I came at it from a couple of different er- er- elements. Like, firstly, I just don't like him. I would have covered the... But are there are there criminals that you do kind of like? Yeah, of course there are. Yeah. Like, you know, of course there are. Yeah. But you can't help but think they're quite funny, quite quirky. Uh, I don't like what they do. Uh, I'd always be aware of what they're capable of. And, you know, you'd never be totally trusting of yeah. anybody like that. But uh, definitely they're not all as nasty as John Gilligan. Gilligan. Okay. Um, I mean, he is disliked even within the criminal world. But he, uh, when I was covering, and I was only very young at the time, covering her, the murder trials, um, sitting in the special criminal court, and it was quite an affair, like there were snipers on the roof of the building. We were all searched going in. And, you know, this was quite jaw-dropping for me. Was there a threat? Like, why were there snipers? What Did because, they think what would happen? Well, that, you know, the super grasses, the witnesses would be killed and okay. they, were being in, they were in witness protection. It was the first time the Special Criminal Court had been used for gangland crime. It was set up for subversive activities. Um, so this was a bit of a show trial. And um, so there was, you know, loads of journalists. There mm-hmm. seemed to have been rows and rows of them. And Gilligan would be in the dock and he would go through all the faces until he came to, well, certainly me. Mm-hmm. I'm sure other female journalists had it from him as well. And then he would just settle on you and start winking and making kissing things across the courtroom. Um, and so intimidating. Just, that was just his way, you know. Yeah. And I suppose maybe when I was younger, I would avert my eyes. I wouldn't now. You'd but, just lock um, eyes with him. I would lock eyes with him. And I've had, you know, meetings not not sort of organised but I have met him in the past few years a number of times and he continues to be that, that kind sneering sort of leery nasty. it's always this sort of undertone from him of exactly that you're a female journalist and and you know what I do to female journalists yeah. um, talk to me about the trial you were talking about there recently of the, the Regency the Monk the Monk Jerry mm. the Monk Hutch uh, I was surprised by that uh, outcome I have to say when you're talking there about like criminals that you like and criminals that you don't like, I wouldn't be like, I would be less terrified Mm -hmm. to be in a room with Jerry than I would be with John Gilligan. Like, I feel like he kind of sticks to his own thing and he's like, some people have described him as the best of the worst of them. Well, he's certainly a more intriguing character, I think, than John Gilligan. Yeah. And he doesn't have any history of violence to women or, I mean, John Gilligan, even in his recent interviews, admitted that he was violent within the home to his wife. And he is just a violent, sort of aggressive man. Um, Lots of people would say that the monk is actually really good for his community and like, you know, would would kind of have have a grow for him, which seems strange. He is what he is, but he's loved. Yeah. And that's the way I'd put it. Um, He is loved within his community and he's a popular character in certain areas of uh, the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think also he doesn't necessarily 
I mean, he he isn't obviously linked to something as horrific as the murder of Veronica yes. Guerin. There's yeah. nothing like that. A lot of the stuff that he would be linked to in the past has been sort of armed robberies, you know, quite daring heists. And then in more recent times, he has managed to take this aloof position. Um, the Gardaí told us during the court that he was the sort of the patriarch as such of the Hutch organised crime group. But that group isn't as structured as many others. Okay. Um the monk himself would just see himself as an elder. Um, he wouldn't admit or claim to be controlling the younger generations. So some younger generations are off doing different things that he may not approve of, but he's not and ordering that. I mean, I know for a fact he, he wouldn't have been very supportive of his nephew Gary Hutch being as embedded as he was in the Kinahan grouping okay. in Spain. And when Gary Hutch went into tr- got into trouble he did try and step in and mediate for his life um i think he walked away from that mediation process with daniel kinahan believing that he had mediated for gary's life but this was a, a sort of a new generation that didn't uh stick by their word okay like in the in the old days a lot of them, and look again everybody was different some of mm-hmm. them didn't some of them did but they there was this code that they went by. Yeah. And one of the rules was you never brought trouble to another man's door in that if you had trouble with somebody, you took it outside and away from the home. And I think when the Kinahan Hutch feud in particular started up, you saw that aggression coming down on an entire community and on anybody that was related. There was women being threatened really with acid attacks. There was Can you all talk to us about stuff. the Kinahan Hutch, like just very briefly about yeah. like how did that all start and why those two families and where are they and, and who's winning? So what happened was they were all together as such, okay. sort of members of the Hutch organised group and the Kinahans were working together and Gary Hutch being the most senior member of the Hutch side was detailed in a report in 2010 as being a lieutenant just under Daniel Kinahan and they were very good friends, they lived together, they shared a home. So Daniel was at the top, he Gary was, at the was underneath. by virtue of his birthright, you know, because okay. his father had essentially established this grouping. But the monk was not involved in any no, of this? Okay, he was not involved in any of it and um, there was a fallout. I mean, the truth lies somewhere in the middle of it all. Okay. The Kinahan Something happened, they fell supporters out. Supporters would say that the Hutches um, became greedy and tried to kill Daniel. I think that certainly Gary Hutch might have been involved in a an attempted assassination of Daniel and the gloves came off and, and they just... Do, does anyone remember exactly where any of these things start? They don't mm-hmm. really. And what community is this in? Like, were they... They were living in Spain at the time. Okay, but, so it wasn't happening in Dublin. Well, it happened in Dublin when the Regency Hotel attack happened, which was the Hutch offensive against the Kinahan. And that was an attempt to assassinate okay. Daniel Kinahan. That happened after Gary Hutch was murdered and after there was an attempt on the life of the monk in Lanzarote. Okay. Some months later. So that really was a spectacular, as they'd call it. And it was in the aftermath of that that Daniel Kinahan took to, I think, protecting his power, uh, the reverence that was afforded to him. And we saw a spate of killings carnage, after yeah. that. There was absolutely. And it was basically like anyone who's ever been in touch with the Hutches or related yeah. to them, like it, whether or not they were ordinary, decent people. Or involved in crime, it was just like, you're just not safe. There was innocent people killed. There was people who, um, you know, were relatives of the Hutches. But, you know, I'm not saying that they were guilty of anything. Mm-hmm. The Kinahans identified who they believed had gone for that, had gone for Daniel in the Regency. They carried out their own investigation. OK. Um, and they identified who they believed were the drivers, were this, that and the other. And they went hell for leather with a massive amount, massive war chest of money pumped it into that north inner city community, bought a lot of uh, loyalty. You know, they they would have bought, like, you know, maybe, for for example, people with addictions to drugs and used them as spotters, paid them in drugs and money and cash, whatever, and used them. And neighbour turned on neighbour and friend turned on friend. and, And this completely toxic situation existed in the north inner city, which has probably destroyed that community forever. And um, I was living in Fibsborough at the time and I do remember being a little bit apprehensive walking around being like, I, this could, this, I don't mm. know who is threatening here. How had, what happened to kind of stop that? Because we kind of have seen some kind of a ceasefire there. Well. Or have we? Not a ceasefire, no. But what happened was the Garda offensive against them and, 
you know, in the end of the day, nobody's actually bigger than the state. And when mm-hmm. the state clamps down, they do shut down these organisations and they have dismantled the Kinahan organisation in this country. There's 70 affiliates, senior members of the, the cartel behind bars now. There's mm-hmm. hit teams taken off the streets. They have managed to quell the killing, but they haven't and never will solve the problem the that underlies it, which is this hatred of the two okay. sides. Um, I don't think anybody thinks that it's over. Okay. There will still be opportunities taken in the but future. But at least it's not playing out. It's not playing out. People. And the, while the Kinahan organisation has been dismantled here, it is a global, trans-global organisation, as we were told by the Americans when they sanctioned them. So the, the fight Does to that actually have them, any the impact? sanctioning? Yeah. Well, it's hard to say that because, you know, they are a business. They're not actually, the sanctions are all about money yeah. and to strangle somebody's finances. But they're probably not in like legal bank accounts. Like exactly. You know. So they're, a, you know, they're a it problem. It makes it hard it, it, for them, it, but it not. Creates, it creates, I suppose it makes them toxic for people to deal, deal with. with. And it certainly. Because Daniel then moved to Dubai, right, and tried to rehabilitate his career as a as a boxer. Well, some... he did. He he represented the you know most famous boxer in the world, Tyson Fury. And oh yes, he, he tried to broker that deal. He. I was talking to somebody this morning there, from within the boxing world, and um, there was a description of how Kinahan took a hold of boxing and that his poison is still in it. Okay. You know, nobody he's really not there, is he? Trust. Well, I mean, a lot of people believe he's still behind the scenes in boxing. He was very, very high up. He was very, I mean, he has a lot of money. He has billions. So I know that our Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, is in Dubai at the moment as we record this. Mm. And he's, what, trying to speak to the authorities, the government in Dubai and say, listen, like, you need to kind of crack down on this lad. I think he's just... I mean, he's laying a bit of groundwork. You know, this is a political... To get the Kinnahans home is going to be a political push from Ireland. We're very small. Mm-hmm. We're very small fry, really, in the world. And um, we've punched above our weight, by the way, with our drug dealers. Yeah, for sure. Our, our Kinnahans are the first... Our so writers and our drug dealers. If they were... Um, the football team, we'd be welcoming them home in an open-top bus and celebrating them for decades. Um, so why is it that, like... If you get that, so they're trying to get Daniel home, they want to arrest him for something, you know, but like we had Jerry the Moncoch, we thought that like I was definitely sure he's going to like, once you get these people into court, they're going to jail. Like there's no way you're letting Daniel Kinahan or Jerry the Moncoch out of court to walk home. And then it was a rarity when he, he beat the system. I think even he was shocked. No, I don't think he was. No. no? Um, I think anybody that was sitting in the courtroom and sometimes you have to sit there to listen. OK. Um, the evidence simply was not there for the charge they put him on because they, they, they charged him with murder. OK. And they simply didn't have the evidence according to the judge's decision have the evidence to prove beyond reasonable doubt that he was the guy who shot David Byrne in the Regency. And even those photos, I don't think it was him. Like, they don't... Well, I'd never heard it was him. I thought I was all over that story. Like, but I yeah. had never, until they said it in court, I was like, they thought he was the shooter. Is he like um, jumping up on a counter? Like, he's not a limber man. I think man. ultimately they probably went on the wrong charges. For okay. Him. If they had gone for weapons charges, they, he might be in a different position now. Um, with the Kinnahans, so currently... We don't have charges against the Kinnahans. So the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, has a massive big file now. Probably takes up a room the size of this. And it's the case the state have have put together against the Kinnahans. Within the next six months, the decision should be back from the Director of Public Prosecutions. And if the director decides to charge them, likely with murder with directing criminal organisation from outside the state, then we'll be, we'll want them in court and we will officially want them in court. And that's when everything changes with the Emirates. Because okay. I don't believe if we have those charges, if we have them, the you know, we, we, we've no extradition treaty, obviously, with the Emirates because we don't believe in their laws and they, they probably don't. don't believe in ours. Okay. We don't believe you should jail someone for drinking on the street, you know. So we can't have extradition with a country that is so different yeah. to us. Um, but nonetheless, you rely on international relations to for for those kind of people to be handed back from places where we don't have extradition. Um, if Ireland has charges against the three, if our courts here want them, I don't know how, which way the Emirates turn at that point to say, no, we're not giving them up. But can he, he not like m- know this and then move to 
Iran or somewhere else? Well, he could, I'm sure, if he could get out of the out of Dubai. I'm not 100% sure the Kinahans would be too happy in Iran. It's interesting when you look at the territories that they could go into because they're not really safe, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, a, an associate of theirs who was wanted back in Italy tried to get to Turkey through Syria mm-hmm. and was kidnapped by the remnants of Al-Qaeda and oh, held wow. for ransom. Because that's the sort of territories they're going through. And obviously these guys are billionaires. Yeah. And it's actually probably a really good idea if you're in Al-Qaeda or, you know, the remnants of ISIS or whatever, to actually hold them and and ask for money because... um, So that's a danger for them, obviously. And uh, and these countries are are very corrupt and, you know, in the end of the day, they're outsiders. Mm -hmm. So can they trust bringing their money, shifting their money across the globe like that? I mean, ultimately, what I think is going to happen to them is they're going to be sent back to Ireland. They're going to be put on trial in the special criminal court. Um, it'll be an extraordinary event when it happens. Um, and I reckon whatever they have money-wise in uh, certainly some of the Gulf states, I won't necessarily say the Emirates, but some of the Gulf states uh, will be just kept. By them or by well, the Gulf by states? The, well, I mean, they're hardly going to hand it back to them. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, they're not in a good position they're still living it up, I suppose. That's the thing, isn't it? Like, are they living it up? Like, if you can't come back home, you can't, like, you're living in Dubai. I mean, they pro- they have so much money that they probably, but I don't know. It just feels like a pretty restricted life. Well, it's not life. for me. And um, I have thought about it a lot, the kind of lot, because I've seen them and I have seen, I've been in their environment and watched them. And how? When? Like, how would you be well, around Well, I've seen them? them certainly in Spain. I haven't been out to the Emirates. It wouldn't be safe to kind of work in that territory and especially for a woman. But um, I have seen them. I've seen the money they have. I've seen the lifestyle they live. They're like um, in a gilded cage. Mm-hmm. And I think the wealthier they've got, the bigger they've got in the world, the smaller their world has actually become. Just taking a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Rockwell Financial. Rockwell Wealth Management are proud supporters of women in business. They support this podcast, they support me, and they want to support you too. They have a free consultation for basically listeners. This is the offer. You contact them, you tell them that you listen to the Basically podcast and they will give you a free one-to-one consultation to help you with your wealth management or any financial advice you need. Your heart works 24-7. So if you're worried about chest pain, palpitations or breathlessness, it's really reassuring to know that expert heart care works 24-7 too. The Matter Private Network in Dublin is the only private hospital in Ireland offering urgent cardiac care all day, every day. That's weekends, bank holidays, even through the night. It's a unique service for patients who are worried about their heart and want to be seen quickly by heart experts at one of Ireland's leading hospitals for cardiology care. If you're worried about your heart, remember this number, 1800 247 999. You'll speak directly to a cardiac specialist nurse at Matter Private and they'll talk to you about your symptoms. And if you need to come to hospital, you'll get a thorough cardiac assessment as soon as you arrive. If you need treatment or a procedure, the cardiology team will work out the most appropriate plan for you. Even if you need treatment the same day, this will be arranged immediately. For urgent cardiac care at Matter Private Network Dublin, call 1800 247 999 or visit matterprivate.ie for more information. I Know The Face is a movie podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network, hosted by me, Stephen Porzio. And me, Andrew Carroll. Our show is all about character actors, the type of performers you'll see pop up in supporting roles in blockbusters, the type of people you know the faces but not the names. Each episode we pick one particular character actor and discuss a couple of their movies, shining a light on the performer's career while giving listeners plenty of movie recommendations. So the show is a must for cinema lovers. Subscribe to I Know That Face wherever you get podcasts and follow us on Twitter at I Know That Face P1. They can't trust anyone really. They can't trust anybody. They can't move about freely. Um, they're constantly going to bed at night wondering is tomorrow the day that I end up in a cell Okay. and whereas Christy Kinnan Senior has actually spent time in prison and he's used it he he, he used it well he took an education mm-hmm. at the, the courtesy of the Irish taxpayer um, but his son has never been in prison and neither of them have um, and I know people who know him and say that that's his greatest fear and they don't think he can do prison it's very sort of bravado and tough in gangland to say or to do prison with your hands tied behind their back. I'm sure at night when they're locked up in a cell on their own they, you know, I don't believe anybody really is okay with their freedom being taken. Mm-hmm. Well, Not that's being the point able to it, walk it? out the door and go to the shop or pick up the phone and ring somebody or whatever. But um, 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, would you like facing into your retirement not knowing at all what the future holds? And But do these guys retire? Like, can they retire? Just well, hand the mantle to someone else. Does he have kids, Daniel? A lot. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. What As age? Is his father? Oh, between the ages, very young to probably 20s now at this stage. And, and are they all involved? No. No. Not to my knowledge. His children are educated very in Ireland, or no, are they no. over there with him? No, some of them are educated in a private school out there where Roald Dahl went. I mean, they would have had the best of everything. It's funny because, um, you know, the generations change so much. Like in the America, in America, the mafia actually sort of educated their kids out of crime, okay, and ended up kind of like imploding their own organization. That's not a bad thing, though, is it? Is that what they want? Not necessarily, like, okay. I mean, not, they sort of lose their whole ability to be feared because their kids have had a completely different upbringing life. Now, some obviously will always be drawn to that family business, but um, like, in a, they sort of like middle class their kids too much. Yeah. Um, but wouldn't it do. be like, imagine if you were in school with like one of the Kinahan kids and you're like, oh, I have this new best friend and I want to go to his house for a sleepover. <laughs> you're like, oh my God, I've got a pain in my stomach. You're not allowed to be friends with them. Um, so we have some questions from listeners. Um, what do you think is the best book on Irish gangland? My own one. Yeah. <laughs> What's it called? Go on, go on. No, I actually have a book coming out in um, October called Cocaine Cowboys. That will be the best one. Cocaine the Cowboys. One Amazing. Is my other book, Clash of the Clans. Um, look, there's there's plenty of the w- Paul Williams books, collection of books there. Um, Stephen Breen has some good books out. The Witness. Um, the Witness, obviously. Yeah, I forgot about that. Jeepers. Um, we need to talk about The Witness. So if you haven't listened to The Witness, I didn't read the book, but I listened to the podcast, which I think probably a lot of people, that's the way it yeah, went yeah. in the end. The podcast was so, so powerful. Joseph O'Callaghan, um, in his own words, telling telling the story from when he was a, a, a young boy and a milkman knocked at the door and offered him a job to how he was groomed, uh, brought into a drug gang, sexually assaulted, physically assaulted, and how he eventually became a witness to putting that man away. Um, but lots of people here asking how Joseph is. Are you still in touch with him? Oh God, yeah. Yeah? Uh, Joe is good, actually. He's doing really well. And um, he is, we recently, myself and Joey went in to meet the minister about grooming legislation. Okay. Um, and we have an invite to see the the education minister in relation to all of that as well. Joey is an amazing character because, well, largely because he had so much really good therapy. He okay. has the ability to tell and own his own story. So all I really have ever had to do with Joey is guide him yeah. along the way to create something that is, you know, n- very few of us have the have the our ordinary members of the public maybe who aren't journalists have the skill to kind of put together a narrative, you know. Mm-hmm. So really it's just been a guiding hand with Joey. Um, he totally owns his own story. Like when I started writing the book with him, um, I started writing the book and you've written books, you know mm-hmm. what this is. But like wh- way more than halfway through it, I ripped the whole thing up and started again. In his words. In his words. Because I realised I had no place there. And I managed to sort of find his voice and that's what we did with the book. So the book is essentially, I've written it, but... It's in his, like it's, it's his... It's his story, story. And, and written in the in the eye. Um, when we came to doing the podcast, you know, he had, I suppose, had that massive experience of writing a book because that's a huge thing for him to have done uh, given what happened to him in life. And he had a really good understanding of what happened to him mm-hmm. through his counselling and through the counselling of the of the writing of the book. But that's so, the thing, like you never, like you very rarely hear someone so capable of telling their own story mm. and having the self-awareness and kind of knowing this is what led to this and... Exactly. And yeah, I guess it, it was just so And he's a kind so heart and a kind soul and he's one of the people, like I meet people all the time within that world that 
shouldn't be there, but they've no way back. They've no route out of it. It's very difficult to back out of it. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to find a way. I think that's what we are seriously lacking in society. I don't exactly have answers how to do it other than to keep funding and more funding on the community groups who are on the ground. But there has to be a way out provided for these kids, you know. Is um, it the case that if they want out, they get killed? Like, are they just not... Well, like anything in your life, it's difficult when you've made decisions, you've gone down a particular road, it's difficult to unravel it. Okay. You know, even if you think about your career or your choices with family and things like that, it is difficult. And when I say family, a lot of kids who would be involved in criminality, Joey wasn't one of them, but a lot of kids, the family are involved. So you're trying to reach a kid, but you're trying to reach through a family to get that kid. That's really difficult. And you say there that you met the minister and you have an invitation to meet the Minister for Education. Is Joey still in witness protection? Or is he... No, so what happens with witness protection is, which people don't really, I suppose, engage with, is that you're only a protected witness to get into the witness box. And once you've given your evidence, you're signed out of witness protection. Okay. And the signing out process means that you're given a new identity Uh, You're given a new location and you're somewhat helped set yourself up in this new location. Now, we obviously deal with other countries. There's plenty of people in this country who are on witness protection from other places. Mm -hmm. We deal with English language territories usually. America's the big ask for people. They all want to go there. Um, Because if you go to the UK... I just don't feel like it's far enough away. If they Vast, though. I mean, there's all that northern England, massive, sprawling okay. kind of housing estates and, you know, big, huge cities. Um, you get like is like. So you can't be paid to give evidence. So you're, you're basically protected and given. If you were on the dole beforehand, you stay on the dole. Mm-hmm. You give your evidence and then you're, you're, you're resettled somewhere. This is the way it's supposed to go, by the way. We don't really know exactly how it goes. I have anecdotes from mm-hmm. people I've spoken to, but you're supposed to be resettled in exactly the same sort of situation you were in. So Jonathan Dowdall, for example, is a really interesting case because he had his own business. He had a very nice home on the Navan Road. His entire family are resettling with him. Um, and some of them are educated and working. One is a solicitor. So you so, get them a solicitor's job somewhere? Well... You certainly have to help them try. But they, what, have they have to, a new name. You can't tell the, the new state job. The will have to sell his home and use the funds then to pay off wherever he's resettled. And it's very complex, his case. And also he's very mouthy. I don't know how he's going to shut his gob. He's like, very mouthy, but also I feel like there's a lot of people after him. Like you really have to bury. Well, he's really irritated a lot of people. I mean, I couldn't believe him in the witness box because like he had... <laughs> He just did it all. Like, I mean, he he did more than he had to. Um, Between all the paramilitary groupings, the Hutch organisation and the Kinahan organisation. And and Mary Lou. Like, he just went for everybody. Actually, establishment as well. He really was chaotic. Um, But, you know, witness protection, the problem, I suppose, the whole point of doing the Joey story was to highlight that it doesn't really work. Yeah. And... You know, in Joey's case, and and Joey remains under threat Mm -hmm. from the people he put away. He has to live with a new identity. He could sit beside you on the bus and you wouldn't know if he's in Ireland. Um, I'd know his voice now, though, if I heard him talking. But you'd be surprised, actually. (laughs) Would you? Yeah. But um, the thing is, you're no threat to him. Yeah. And yet he has to hide from you and everybody else. It's this psychological nightmare he's living in. I'd love to meet him. story and all (laughs) that. Um, and trying to establish relationships and everything, you have to lie. You are supposed to just keep up this new identity and new backstory and everything. And it's human exhausting, nature, I imagine. Exhausting and very, very difficult. You now. become kind of unknowable then to the people who you learn. You know. And somebody as young as him, he had no ability to pay a bill to know how to mm-hmm. do anything for himself, really. He had gone from childhood to being groomed into that sort of weird relationship with Brian Kenny that Brian Kenny had him as sort of you know his slave and never gave him any money or anything you know what I mean he gave him an awful room in the house but he never actually uh, like Joey was minding your man's children Children, yeah, you know so he went out there into the world with this new identity this new backstory with all that trauma that he had 
no help and off you go paddle your own canoe now and it's so sad because I think anyone who's listened to the podcast like they just want to mind him like everyone just wants to like Everybody, know who he yeah. is have, like look after him make sure that he's doing okay and we can't like we you know it's not safe for him to be known that way well and the thing is I suppose in his case the big thing the big question there is was it worth it because he did a service to the state I mean we as a society, have this witness protection programme. We ask people to come and give evidence. We ask people to help the justice system jail somebody who's done wrong. We say we'll stand shoulder to shoulder with them. But in the case of Joey, as soon as he'd done that, he was literally on his own. own. And he's had to deal with that. And I think his reflective and his ability to to, um, tell that story is what's so powerful. Yeah, I really hope that uh, that he's doing well. So send him all of our love. Um, I live inside the K. Um, oh, ad- yeah. Addiction issues via sibling, crime, violence, fear, currency. Do you think that uh, fear, violence and crime are the currency? Yes. Uh, would legalising drugs make any difference to this or do you see a way to, like, like you're kind of saying though, you know, like it's the community, like invest in the community and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, people say legalise drugs, but it it hasn't worked to stamp out organised crime anywhere. And uh, Is it the case that people just will continue to go to their dealers even if they can get it in Tesco? Well, of course. And also it's a little bit of a global issue. So if we say, for example, took a stand here in Ireland, and we decided we're going to legalise all drugs and we're going to, you know, have it for sale in shops. Our government, I suppose, would have to go out and deal with the Colombian cartels and, and you know, buy projects from them. Okay. So unless globally it was a decision that drugs were legalised and you could just free for all. Um, And again, I don't even think that would work because there's always some other substance coming along. You see at the moment there the new fear which will be somebody coming up under me sort of as a journalist will be doing most of their work around is fentanyl. Yeah. And that's coming. Everything that's coming that from is, China mainly though, is it? Yeah, well, if we look at what's happening in the States and fentanyl is available as a drug to buy, it's cheap, it's easy to make, it's hugely potent, hugely addictive and it's been put into all drugs. So you don't just buy fentanyl, it's been put into cocaine, it's been put into everything, very easy to overdose on it. But I see people saying, like, I, I listen to a lot of this kind of stuff and people saying, like, I'm not even... So in America, you can buy from these little bodegas, you know, an individual cigarette. But they're lacing them with fentanyl mm. because it's so addictive that you're like, God, if I'm going to buy a cigarette, I'm going to buy from that guy because his cigarettes are great. Mm. That, like, people just don't trust anyone and everyone's trying to get everyone hooked on fentanyl. Well, this is it. And I mean, you legalise it and what you have the, you know, you have it available in Tesco drugs. I mean, do you... But is, fentanyl is, is legal, like it's available, like I've had fentanyl because yeah. I've had an anaesthetic and mm. it's this chemical compound now, which is, you know, there is a place, I guess, for fentanyl in medical settings. Of but course. It's just so... It's so potent. easy to overdose on is yeah. the problem. And in the States... I mean, the ser- terrible, sad stories there. I mean, every story, anybody who overdoses, a young life taken like that, whatever. But it's not just people on the streets who are poly drug users, who mm-hmm. are problem addicts. It's young college students who try try something yeah. on a night out and, and and they're overdosing and dying. And I mean, you know, not saying that that one life is more important than another one, but it is, it's just the fact that it has poisoned the entire drug system. I listened to an interesting podcast called The Retrievals, which yes. is about a, uh, nurse who this, a nurse who was nicking mm. fentanyl from from vials. She worked yeah. in a fertility clinic and so women were coming in to get egg retrievals and IVF done mm. and they were given water like yeah. or saline through their veins and they're like, this is really hurting and the doctors were like, but you've been give- we can't give you any more of this Like, and it's because she had been siphoning it off. And it's a very interesting podcast actually, yeah. The Retrievals, because it also kind of homes in obviously on fentanyl, the problem with it, the addictive uh, aspects to it, but on the fact that women are not believed, are (laughs) not believed, but also are put through things. I don't believe men would be surgically put through. No. The stuff women are. No, they wouldn't. Absolutely not. And like saying like, oh, this is really, really hurting me. And the doctor, the male doctor being like, it can't be that sore. Mm. Like you are being hysterical. Um, A few more questions before we finish up. Um, Before we go into childbirth. (laughs) 
Oh Christ. Um, why do drug dealers feel invincible? Is it not clear that is it not clear that they all get caught or do they all get caught or how do they get away with this? So they don't really have long term thinking, I suppose. And again, you always have to, to understand that world. You you have to start sort of cast aside your own belief system and you mm-hmm. know what, what how you kind of maybe everything you do, you kind of think, well, what that's going to look like in a year. I'll invest mm-hmm. a little bit in this and see. Hopefully that'll come back to me tenfold or whatever. They live for the day and it's a very violent world. It's probably a very exciting world. There's a buzz to it. They live for the woman on their arm. They're usually men in the in the, in the game. Uh, the fast car, the expensive holidays. It's addictive, the lifestyle that they get out of it and they live for that lifestyle. So they don't think, am I going to be caught? They risk it. They take the risk every day because, and especially young men. Well, that's the thing, like I've seen and I've heard anecdotally from, let's say, Brown Thomas. Like the people now coming into Brown Thomas to buy Canada Goose jackets, Alexander McQueen shoes, like Balenciaga, really, really high end stuff are not, you know, the Google tech guys who earn 200k a year. That's not. They are young men from the inner city who are coming in and buying in cash. Like, how is that not a big red flag that we can regulate? Well, I think Brown Thomas and some of the other stores have given some training to their staff in money laundering and recognising it and certain amounts of cash coming in is something that they will red flag. But yes, they're all wearing the Balenciaga and everything. Um, Again, I suppose to engage in that world, I have seen so many of them and they probably die in those runners, Um, you know, with a bullet in the head on the side of a road, having gone to meet somebody, double crossed, they might be, you know, owe money. Um, For the sake it's of a horrific, yeah. violent world. But you see, the young mind, I think, is high risk taking anyway. Don't, like impulse control doesn't develop until you're like 20 or something. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and, you know, you're coming from, a lot of them are coming from situations where they maybe haven't had, they maybe haven't been lucky enough to have really good parenting. Mm-hmm. They may have slipped through the cracks in the school system. A lot of people in the prison system have learning difficulties and stuff that were missed and that's why they didn't get on in school and that's why they left school and that's why they saw this as a career option or whatever. A lot of them have been brought in by friends, by family. Um, but they live for the moment. They and it does the give day. them that status like that we all kind of need, that feeling of like esteem. And f- funny, a lot of the women in certain communities, some women in certain communities, probably coming from the same background that I've just described there, from mm-hmm. the men, you know, they may have fallen through the cracks in the schooling system. They may not have had, been lucky enough to have good parenting. They see their career as clinging to one of these men and probably, you know, being the number one woman in that they'll have a baby for, they always describe the language yeah. as having a baby for him. Yeah. And that's, and they will be funded and maybe it is the only way they can get out of that cycle of poverty. Yeah, but then they're like standing at the funeral with a small child. You know, it's so sad. Um, and my last question then before I let you go is, do you think that podcasts like this, like yours, the way that we have changed media, do we think that we're glam? Like, are we making it worse? Are we glamorizing it? Should we not be naming them? Should we not be fascinated by them? Like, I could talk to you all day about Daniel Kinahan. Like, I'm obsessed. I want to know, like, what is he doing? Where is he? What's going on? But like, if he knew that, like that's an ego boost. Like, oh my God, these two women in Ireland are so obsessed with me that they're talking about me for an hour. Should we just be like, no, we're not, we're not paying attention to you? I don't think we get anywhere by not talking about it. I don't, I've never believed it's been glamorised. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, don't, I don't believe talking about it is glamorising. I think it's doing the opposite. I think it's maybe educating, maybe people listening this aren't living in that world they could be living outside the world but maybe for an instant they might stop and think that's what I, I think sending that hundred quid up the line um, you know or for my I, Friday night yeah. and I mean look I don't know how you stop people taking cocaine I've no idea I mean it's been taken for decades but apparently it's absolutely like anyone you would think like when I was growing up certain people did mm. drugs and I could identify them by their tattoos or their behaviour but apparently now it's just everywhere. Well, I mean, they're very young now as well. I mean, 15, 14, 15, starting to take cocaine. So scary. Oh my God. And it's cheap. And cheaper than drinking. cheaper. 
Which is even more scary. But a cocaine is up, right? It's like, I'm going to be able to go all night and we're mm. going to... But fentanyl is like, now I'm going to... Sleep. It's heroin, right? It's like... But you see, they'll put the fentanyl into the cocaine and the cocaine is... Yes, it is that. I'm going to be able to go all night. And I think what you see in young, certainly in women, young women is they don't have to drink and they have the calorie thing. They don't want the calories of the alcohol. It's amazing, isn't it? Alcohol, yeah. Yeah. So, um... And That's a whole other issue. Like. Also, I'm speaking to young kids who've been going to things over the summer and that um, it's easier to get into places. It's easier to smuggle in if they're going to a concert. OK, or then like, like a that, pouch of than a drink, vodka. A yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think that it's like, I don't think that there's vodka any needs young... to up its game. <laughs> I don't think there's any young people listening to this who are like, that life that Stephanie and Nicola just described, I want that. I want the... I'm going to go into drug. Like, I don't think... Well, you see, the user's don't see themselves as, as connected, connected to, the to the other world, which is the, that dirty part under, that stays yeah. in certain communities and they just don't. But if they couldn't sell what they're bringing in, they would be quick to fall. Exactly. Yeah. Supply, demand. So it's all of our problem. It, well, if you buy drugs. Yeah. Um, Nicola Talent, thank you so much. If people want more, they, they like what you're selling. Where can they find you? Tell us the podcast and when the book is out and what it's called. Crime World is... Uh, wherever you get your podcast is now what we say yeah there's so many bloody platforms after you listen you to this one just yeah. google look it up yeah, crime, world. crime world and do about three or four episodes that a week yeah um, it's great for keeping up with it keeps up hopefully kind yeah. of like even sometimes they're just small little chats just to kind of keep up certain threads that we're following um, book Cocaine Cowboys is out at the end of October and it tells the story of how those first bales started to roll in on our West Coast and how we became one of the most prolific users of cocaine in this country and who was behind that. The, oh, the, kind cool. of the characters who who really sort of were, I suppose, the, the first the start. The gold rush. Um, and then I think early, sort of February, April next year, back on stage, live shows. Amazing. Brilliant. Uh, thank you so much, Nicola Talent. And thank you for listening to another episode of Basically. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahalo Gara. We're produced by Hilary Barry and we're part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. See you next week. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Head Stuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.